0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist Yard in Sydney on Gadigal Lands, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockwell. For the last five years, the ABC 730 has ended the week with a sketch featuring comedian Mark Humphreys. Mark and his writing partner, Evan Williams, moved over to the ABC in 2018, leaving SBS's The Feed and they were joined by Director of Photography and Editor Chloe Angelo. The team produced sketches that were as funny as they were biting, and all on a shoestring budget. Recently came the news that due to budget restraints, the weekly sketch was dropped from 7.30, so this seemed like a great time to get Mark Humphreys onto 4th Estate to talk about his career so far, and to pick his brain about satire and his views on some of the less impressive parts of the media. Mark Humphreys, welcome to 4th Estate. Oh, thank you, Anthony. Lovely to be with you. Okay, Mark, we're, we're going to talk a lot about, about comedy and your work, but let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about the comedy you were exposed to growing up. I think I, I just
1: loved sitcoms. That's my main memory. I think it was all the especially those US sitcoms of the, of the early 90s, so The Golden Girls, Mercy Brown dare I say it, the Cosby Show. And that was my first sort of entree, I think. And I, I I think somehow through that, I always felt, oh, I think I'd like to go into comedy one day based on nothing other than just a general vibe of that seems like fun. But, yeah, that was probably those are the things that stood out for me. And then as I became a teenager, in terms of I think Sean McAuliffe, you know, in this country was certainly the biggest influence, certainly that, that first Australian comedian who I really was like wow this guy's operating on another level there's just you know a sensibility there's a there's a a, a wit and intelligence to to this guy's comedy that was a, that was a cut above and so that was a, that, that sort of stood out and then you know expanded into kind of watching a lot of British comedy Alan Partridge I became a huge. Huge fan of and still am, and absolutely in awe of Steve Coogan. But, but yeah, no, it it started with sitcoms. I never, it wasn't, it wasn't like I, I saw, you know, Clark and Door at age six and went, I want to do a a poor, a poor man's version of that one day.
0: And it's interesting you mentioned McAuliffe. I mean, in, in some respects, he's the closest thing we've ever had to somebody like Peter Cook, who's a great satirist. 100%. Yeah and look, look your your parents were they a big influence and your dad worked at the ABC was he always switching the the TV over to the ABC and making you watch you know English sitcoms
1: <laughs> Yeah so my dad was at the ABC he was a, he was a weather presenter when I was a kid he'd also been on been a radio presenter prior to that but no I think I mean, yeah we certainly did watch a lot of ABC my mom is from England so you know, the ABC was, I think, colloquially known as BBC South for many years. And so, obviously, that it's still a tra- tradition that's maintained today of, of British content. But, yeah, no, definitely watched, you know, Keeping Up Appearances and later on Dicker of Dibley. And, yeah, so certainly had a lot of British influence there. But, yeah, no, TV was my third parent. I think, like, a lot of our generation, that's prob- probably true. And I was an only child.
0: So I didn't have the you know distractions of siblings. So yeah, I spent a lot of time with with TV. <laughs> so you mentioned you you wanted to be a comedian pretty early on, but but there's not it's not really like something you put down on your CV or you know you enrol at comedy at, at university. So where was the beginning for you? How how did you first get you know on this road? Well, that that's the the funny thing
1: because yeah, there is no sort of comedy. Degree, there's no yeah. If you if you want to sort of go into this area, you have to forge your own path. There's not a and there's not there's not one set path. Obviously, for a lot of people, they go through the stand up route, and that was something that I certainly did have a crack at. You know, about twelve years ago, and it just wasn't my medium. That just didn't really work for me. But uh, yeah, so I always harbored this desire, but didn't really act on it because I didn't see how it would ever work. So I ended up going to uni and studying advertising and and French. I lived in France for a year. It was while I was in France that I thought, well, no one knows me here. So I can sort of make an ass of myself and then come back to Australia at the end of the year. It doesn't really matter. So I took the opportunity to act in plays and short films and and all that sort of stuff kind of made me go, oh, there's, there's something to this. There's something fun about this. And anyway, I came back to Australia. I ended up, finished my degree, realized I did not want to work in advertising and sort of got stuck for a few years working in a warehouse and was sort of just spinning my wheels and going, where you know, sort of directionless. And I was lucky enough that I spoke to a recruitment agent at a certain point that said, I need a job in advertising. I've got an advertising degree. Can you help me out? She said, it doesn't sound like you want to work in advertising. I said, no, I don't, but I need to get out of this warehouse. And she said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, for some reason, I said, yeah, comedy writing. And she said, well, have you tried interning on a comedy show? And it just never occurred to me. I mean, just again, because there's not a set, I, didn't, I just didn't know. I was just so not from that world. I didn't have friends that were comedians. I was just sort of on my own. And so I, Went, I called up Andrew Denton's production company and they were making Hungry Beast at the time on the ABC. It was coming into its third season and for people who don't remember Hungry Beast, it was a sort of youth news and current affairs program that had comedy in it as well. And it was Dan Illich, it was Mark Fennell, Veronica Milson, Kirsten Drysdale, Lewis Hobbert, Nick Hayden, huge, huge cast of, I mean, just an inc- inc- incredible group of young people who've gone on to create so much stuff. But anyway, I so I called them up and said, Can I come in for a week? And they said, Yeah, when when can you come in? And so I think I went in maybe three weeks later and spent a week with that show and just went, Oh gosh, there's something about this this world. And and then I got very, very lucky that I happened to know someone who was also working in the warehouse with me. He was he went off to work on a, a news comedy show called The Roast, which was at that point a two minute nightly comedy show on ABC two. And um he said, oh, I think you'd be good on this. Why don't you call Charles Firth the producer? Charles had created the chase, so it was no and you know, was was well known for that. And yeah, so I called Charles, said, Can I come an intern on that? And and I did, and I just kept turning up until they put me on the payroll. So there's, yeah. So as I said, there's no sort of set path. I got very, very lucky. And yes, God help anyone trying to make their way in because it's uh, there's, no, <laughs> there's no map.
0: No. And, and look, you have a writing partner, which you've had for the last decade, Evan Williams. How did the two of you come to work together? Was there a moment where the two of you bumped into each other a bit like, you know, when Harry met Sally?
1: <laughs> it was very... Evan loves when Harry met Sally, so he'll I'll appreciate that. We met on that. We met on that show, The Roast, and so that was a, a writers' room where you obviously. I think, from I mean, pretty much everyone on that show, it was their first. Yeah, it was their first show. It was their first foray into 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 comedy, and so we we're all sort of finding our voices, for one of a better expression. And Evan was just someone who you just find in those environments that there are certain people whose comic sensibilities you just gel with more than others. It's not a criticism of anyone else in the room, but you just kind of go, oh, I've am i just got the same, we're just on the same wavelength. And so, you know, it would be a thing where over the course of time, you'd see certain jokes go into the script and you'd say, who wrote that joke? Someone would, you know, be, oh, Evan would say, I wrote that. And then you're like, oh, okay. And you're just sort of aware, oh, this guy is, you know, tickling my funny bone. And then vice versa, he was responding to what I was doing, and so we decided to kind of go away. We had a We had a, We had to go at writing something together, and we just found that we were just yeah sufficiently in sync that we really trusted each other's judgments, and we were quite capable of. If Evan came up with something that I could then build on that, or if I came up with Evan would you know you are just building on each other's work, and you were similar enough. That you're in sufficient agreement, but also different enough that you're surprising each other. So I feel very, very fortunate to have met Evan. The other brilliant thing about Evan is that he has no ego. He, he hates performing, so it was never kind of a well. I think I should say this line, or you know, you got to say that line last. So Evan doesn't want to say any lines.
0: So you didn't have the Peter Cook Dudley Moore thing going on.
1: No, exactly. No, no. And that look, and that would have you know, I would have loved that dynamic as well. But with Evan, it's, it's a very specific. It's it's sort of closer to a pen and teller in some ways. The <laughs> illustration occasionally is that sometimes you do just need, because you're always just trying to rope people into sketches, sometimes you need someone just to deliver one line. And you're like, Evan, can you possibly deliver this one line? He's like, man, I really don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. But sometimes sometimes he did he did come and perform when we were in absolute dire need. But, but anyway, perfect writing partner.
0: So it's a little bit like you, Elton John, and his Bernie Taupin. How did the two of you work I've often said that, yeah. I really oh. feel like a- <laughs> How, how do the two of you work together, though? Like, is there, is it, is it kind of like one of you comes in with an idea, or do you both cook up the idea together? What's the, What's the dynamic?
1: It yeah. So, I mean, to take a 730 sketch as an example, I, I mean, it varies week to week, or fortnight to fortnight, that ideally, the day before we would start writing, I mean, all through the week, you're kind of th- you're, you're looking at what's in the news, and you're sort of just clocking that. And in a best case scenario, you see something happen, and 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 an idea miraculously comes to you, almost fully formed, or at least the concept of it comes to you straight away. And but that is extremely rare. So usually what ends up happening is that we would start up a Google Doc, a shared Google Doc we'd work in together. We'd put in a bunch of stories from the week that we thought there might be something in. And we just just sort of talk them through. We just sort of talk those topics through. And then there'd often be we'd sort of go away for an hour independently and sort of play within those topics and, and sort of see if any lines or things would come to us. And just usually over the course of that, some sort of vague concept would emerge from one or the other of us and then once we're both excited excited about a, an idea then you're off to the races but it's sort of it's it's kind of uh, I think like with a lot of creativity it's hard to define exactly where it comes from it just sort of strikes you at a, at a certain moment sometimes it strikes it strikes you much later than you'd prefer and sometimes it doesn't really strike at all um, but uh, yeah in a good week, sometimes we'd be able to call the other one up and go i remember evan called me up once uh he had an idea about because like passing the buck was always a thing that you would hear about in politics uh and uh he just had an idea for what if there was a character what if there was a, an actual government minister for the buck and i went as soon as he said that i went great i can see that so we had it was an interview with the minister for the buck and she you know, he was asked, you know, does the buck stop with you? And he's saying, actually, that's a very common misconception. And so just playing with that whole idea of accountability and responsibility. and Yeah. So those, that was one of those ones where it was like, oh, thank heavens, that, that's that's come at the right time. But a lot of the time, it really was just sitting in front of the computer and waiting it out.
0: Now, look, I became aware of your work during your time on the feed. And at that time, I mean, you really cut through. Tell us about how you got involved and, and what was it like working on that show?
1: I was very lucky. I mean, so much luck involved in all this. But after the roast ended in 2014, didn't really know what I was going to do. The Guardian luckily picked up. There was a segment that Evan and myself and another writer, David Ferrier, that we used to write, sort of headline segment within the roast. The Guardian picked that segment up as an online sort of exclusive, did sort of a fixed episode run of, of that and then off the back of that the feed yes got in touch sbs nick hayden so nick hayden who i had met in my week at hungry beast he was the creator or co-creator and executive producer of the feed on sbs and so he called me up and said would you like to come and do sketches here because i think chris lieben who was sort of the mastermind behind Leland chin you know when because mm. Leland chin obviously was an sbs icon and then became very and they sort of had a, a rebrand where she suddenly became a sort of comedy icon. And that was because the of SBS had kind of had had rebranded her that way. And so anyway, Chris Levin, who had been the comedy writer there, was leaving. And so there was a gap. And so I went over there and I think I did a week of sketches. And then I said to them, and that was just by myself, and I found it so unpleasant. And when I say that, I don't mean a bad work environment, I just mean the stress of writing solo sketches, uh, a sketch a day for a week. I really didn't enjoy it. And I realized I'm a collaborator. I really like to work with other people. And I said, look, is there any way I can get Evan involved in this? And luckily that was able to be arranged. And I mean, I don't think I'm throwing anyone under the bus here because this was our decision. But Evan and I shared a salary for a year because there was not enough money to pay the two people. And Evan and I made the choice to invest in ourselves for a year to kind of back ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we both took half a salary and made sketches together there. And what I loved about SBS was that because SBS has this sort of underdog quality to it, it's sort of like always, you know, if you look at the traditional channels, You'd say ratings-wise, SBS is traditionally out of the traditional five channels. SBS has always been number five, and I think what that then creates within the organisation is a sort of a, a determination to to kind of punch above your weight and prove everyone wrong and show that actually we can do things as well as any other network, and and so there was a real can-do spirit. And I think within that program, that was led, you know, from the top down from from Nick Hayden. That 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 attitude of yeah, of of, of, of always saying yes, of always trying to find solutions for how you could do things. And then when we had two subsequent EPs, Lanny Hargraves and Mike Clay, who were equally enthusiastic and passionate and but but yeah no i remember there was originally the 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 pieces that i was doing were were not so much sketches they were more sort of pieces to camera at a certain point we did more of a kind of sketch which was off the back of the uh, department of finance had released a video which was just horrendous where they had they they used real people from this sort of graduate program. And there's been no criticism of the people. I just mean that they decided, oh, we want to get actors. So we'll just use actual people and to get them to play themselves. And the reality is that most people cannot play themselves. It's not not something that comes naturally. So it was this very, very filtered video and highly scripted video about the Department of Finance, and it went viral. And so we then decided we'd make a parody of it instead of about what it's like working – in this being part of this graduate program, it, we made it about what it's like working at SBS. Shot it in the same style, used the same style of graphics, had the same stilted dialogue and stilted performances, and that that really resonated. That you know went viral in its own way, and that and then that sort of started that part. Like okay, I, I remember right, well, that. Let's make I remember more that. Was that was that these
0: sorts of sketches? Was that the key moment where you and Evan looked at each other and and went we we're onto something?
1: Yeah, no, well, I think that was probably, I think we sensed. oh, there's something there. And pretty much everything we made after that was much more of a sketch, much more of a concept, I suppose, than what had come before, which was largely just me talking down the barrel as myself or like a heightened version of myself. After that, we went much more conceptual. I was like, okay, we're doing fake ads. We're doing parodies of TV shows. We're doing big movie trailers. We're... You know, we're doing, you know, PSAs, all that sort of stuff.
0: And it's interesting you mentioned sketch because I think of you as a satirist, but I'm interested to see what you think because, you know, obviously satire and sketch comedy are related, but they're also very different. Satire tends to be about hitting a target where, you know, a sketch is about hitting the punchline. How do you view yourself and what for you makes good satire?
1: I mean, I go I'm. I'm going to cop out here. That I'm. I'm mean, generally I'm not really fond of labels in, in in a broad sense. But as a shorthand, I think it just makes sense to call myself a satirist. A, a comedian doesn't really, you know. I don't do st- when I think of a comedian. I think more of a, like a stand-up comic, and that's just not something. That's just not really my skill set. And uh, so yeah, I I guess I sort of lump myself in the satire space. And but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think generally we were always trying to make sure that it, it was always helpful to have a target or at least something that you were trying to say. I think that's kind of the key element with satire is you should hopefully have something of value to add or at least be able to express a point of view in a in a creative way. Whereas a sketch, yes. Uh, doesn't need to necessarily say something. It can just sort of be funny for the sake of being funny. But I think for for satire to have any value, it does need to have a point of view and needs to be punching up. And yeah, it needs to uh, ideally make you think about a topic in a in a slightly different way than you had, and and preferably yeah, show the absurdity of, of of a situation. Well, one sketch that I think of where it felt like the elements kind of came together was a a sketch called The Not Today Show. And it was off the back of, I was getting increasingly frustrated, and I'm sure a lot of people were, that during the bushfires of, I think it was late 2019, you had questions being asked of leaders about climate change and the role that that was playing. And you've heard time and time again, politicians saying not today We're that's not that, that, that's not that's not relevant today we're not talking about that today and this not today not today thing really shat me and and then i suddenly went uh, and you start playing with the words and so you go today, today okay what if this today show was the not today show what if it was a what if it was a, a breakfast show that that did not talk about the issues at hand and so once you then have that concept you're then able to now go well what are the elements of a breakfast show that you can play with oh well there's infomercials okay well let's come up with a product that's that that we can do an infomercial about oh there's a there's going to be an interview so well, uh, let's let's work out it would be funny to interview and you know what's our version of the cash cow oh, okay well there's there we know that the koalas are, are being having the habitat destroyed and and they're you know they're suffering from smoke inhalation so what if we have the the not today cash koala and the the cash koala is on a respirator and you know all that sort of stuff so um so again i'm giving you almost longer than (laughs) a answer than than maybe what you asked for um but that's i guess i'm trying to make the point of uh you're trying to find creative ways to make a, a rather earnest point which is we should be talking about climate change so but you're trying to repackage that argument into something more
0: palatable and entertaining so look, you moved from the feed to 7.30, and 7.30 hadn't had any comedy for a few years, but we all know that you're following in the footsteps of Clark and Daw. How did you feel, and, and did you have to change the way that you wrote when you moved to the ABC?
1: Yeah, it's, yeah it was certainly a huge challenge, because the legacy of that is so strong. And of course, John Clark had died as well, so there is just a it's just a general, you know, goodwill and love, and you know that I share for for what for what they did. So, yeah, it was it was certainly daunting to my. I must say, having now come out of the end of it after five years, I'm enormously relieved that we got to do it as long as we did. Because I think we certainly. I don't think Evan and I ever discussed it, but we probably were terrified that we make, I don't know, a few we'd make one or two sketches and they just go, Oh, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but you did five um, years. This yeah, and that would be the end of it. Because I think there had been something where they had attempted to try and do something in the interim and it hadn't quite quite worked. So it was it was certainly a, a, a risk. In terms of how it changed, yeah, I think, you know, we probably there's certainly because also we were doing sketches at the feed daily there was a lot more room to kind of be a bit more throwaway. And what I mean by throwaway is this sort of like, oh, if this doesn't work, you know, we make another sketch tomorrow, we move on. And because and you had to make so many sketches, they didn't all have to be major things. You could occasionally be a little bit more trivial with what the subject matter was. Whereas with 7.30, the gravitas of the show, the fact that you, you know, the Walkley Award winner, Lee Sales, and then ultimately, Sarah Ferguson is the one that has to introduce the sketches. And sometimes you're on the same episode as the Prime Minister or what have you. Yeah, there, there was a weight to it, which meant that you we probably killed a, a lot of ideas that we would have done at the feed just because they didn't feel sort of you know weighty enough. So I think there was a pressure at 730. No one was putting it on us, but it was it was just an unspoken pressure of this is the big leagues. There was a pressure there which i think affected the, the types of sketches that we made and and i think we also felt an obligation to you know because it is a, such a privilege to be in that position a, an obligation to speak about or to make sketches about significant issues and not waste people's time inevitably of course we did waste people's time with, from from time to time but broadly speaking Yes, we were, we, we, we kind of recognized the, you know, the
0: seriousness of the program. What was the work return like? Because some of those sketches were very, very involved.
1: Well, that's, I have to hand it to our shooter editor or cinematographer. Sorry, I'm using the language she gives you, director of photography slash editor, Bowie Angelo. Almost all the sketches were, were shot, lit, sound recorded. And edited by one person. uh, And in most cases, that was Chloe Angelo. We did have other people from time to time when Chloe was away. And so she was a genius at being able to take what was on the page and work out how to get that across visually. And then we would have the support of a production assistant within 7:30 who would. You know, f- help us finding locations or props or things like that. But it was a, it was such a t- I can't stress enough what a low budget, tiny, tiny team it was. And so, any, if anything ever looked ambitious or impressive in any way, I, I can put it down to, to Chloe's you know craftsmanship. Yeah, we we so we we we'd, we would be ambitious with sketches from time to time, and <laughs> we, you know we would come perilously close. To, to not airing them because sometimes Chloe would still be editing because it was all shot and edited in one day. Um, one day. Which is very, very unusual for what we were trying to pull off. And, yeah, sometimes it really would – I think there was certainly a few nights where we're handing the um, little thumb drive containing the file, we're handing that in while 7.30 is going to air. And I think in one case – Lee, I think it was being uploaded even while Lee was delivering the intro. So <laughs> eventually, I think a producer came and had a conversation with us about that. I was maybe just to pare it back a little bit so, so no one's having a heart attack at 7.30 at night, I, but yeah, that's that's where that came from.
0: Like this one sketch I remember, Legislation Actually, where you're doing a, a sort of rom-com between Labor and, and, and the Greens, and that was like a movie trailer, and you you were shot all over Sydney. That must have been a pretty busy day. Oh gosh. Oh, was that the one with the Virginia Gang? Is that what that Yeah? Was, I, but there was all these all these outside uh, shots and shots of you do, you know doing all different stuff and the two of you bumping into each other and like very involved.
1: Yeah, right. Well I, I mean I, I'd have to go back to look at that one, but I think from, from memory, I think most of that was just in different parts of the ABC that we just found spaces that looked sufficiently different. So I think we probably cheated on that one, but there were certainly ones. There was one we did for Qantas. It was sending up Qantas, I think one of the many moments when Qantas was having a bad week. And we went down and we shot on the Opera House forecourt, which became a, a whole other problem because we had permission to do so, but that permission was not passed down to the security people on the forecourt. So we were we lost an hour waiting for that. And then we shot partly in the botanic gardens and the spot in the botanic gardens we wanted to shoot in was currently being, uh, undergoing some sort of transformation. And so, yeah, you, you, you're frantically running, running around Sydney dressed as a pilot uh, with, with ca- uh, you know, Chloe lugging her um, camera and tripod around. So, yeah, we we, we tried to, we, yeah, we did try to be ambitious sometimes with the, the locations because we, yeah, we took pride in knowing that it was a very, very, cheap sketch and, but, but trying to make it look like a million bucks where possible and yeah but again Chloe has
0: added so much value to it. You've now worked closely with the media and with journalists but you're also highly critical of, of aspects of the media. Did your perspective change seeing you, you got to see the sausage being made?
1: No, probably just, con- I think it sort of reinforced it. I don't I mean I, I guess it's funny if, if I went and I don't know, find something I ended up I can't imagine the scenario, but if, if I somehow ended up working at Sky News, I'm sure over time I would become one of those people who's like, you know what, they're actually, they're actually doing a lot of, there actually is a lot of really good people there and they're actually working really hard. And I'm sure that's true. I mean, you, you, <laughs> I think that's true of most, most people I think are inherently good, but I mean, yeah, my experience of, I, I was always extremely impressed by the caliber of, of journalists at SBS and, and, and the ABC, I feel extremely privileged to have been and you know to have shared a, a workspace with them. But I don't know if it's I think I think what sort of amuses me, this is maybe not the answer you're looking for, but I, I'm always amused when there's generalized statements made about the media or about the ABC and some of the assumptions that you see, and maybe it's more of an online Twitter thing, some of the assumptions you see people make about how things work, just not, just so far removed from reality. Hmm. I think, you know, this idea that to Buttrose, for instance, is meddling in every aspect of ABC output, that, you know, there, there is, it is all the, and, you know, this, this idea that, in terms of, you know, to go down the sort of fake news, I never I never witnessed a meeting where everyone was was told what the official line was that they had to go with. I, I, I never, you know, just these sorts of things. I, I just saw individual journalists going about their work diligently, you know, without fear. And I was always immensely Im- impressed by them.
0: Yeah. But look, your work's often riled against tabloid and more extreme elements in the media. I mean, obviously, you're highly critical of aspects of the media?
1: Well, I think my issue is probably if, if I'm to take, I'll take I'll start with Sky News because it's, I mean, it, it's obvious and it feels like low hanging fruit and it is, but just as, as an example, um, it's so performative. It's insincere. That's one of the things I don't like about it is that it's, they understand the audience that they're playing to and they play. They literally do play to that audience. They are playing a role. You are watching. I'm not. I wouldn't go so far as to call them actors, but they are putting on a performance, and I and I really resent that. And then they sort of they pretend that they don't understand why there aren't people like them being put on the ABC. It's just like, well, because what you're doing is not journalism, so it, it doesn't would make any sense for someone to host the seven o'clock news the way that. Andrew Bolt presents the Bolt Report, for instance. I mean that whole model. I, I think Andrew Bolt is is a genius in the sense that he has worked out a business model where he can write an opinion piece and then basically rewrite that opinion piece ad nauseum for years, and then also be paid to read that piece out essentially on Sky News at night and get another paycheck. Uh, kudos, well played, but it's not something to be respected in any you know journalistic sense so i think i i resent the kind of culture war stuff that die news kind of all that the news corp generally focuses on and i i i and, you know I mean, you see it in politics as well it's not all their 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 fault but that sort of stuff sort of just dis- distracts from the real issues so i think that's when my resentment comes from. daily mail is something where I, i'm you know I, it's I mean, what can you say? It's it's, not, it's it's barely even worth talking about. If you if you want there's the side of it which where there was so much plagiarism in terms of the way that they would plagiarise the journalism of other journalists, and so not just from the ABC. I think they do it from various outlets, but I know they certainly did it a lot to the with ABC content. And then you know, let alone all the insane focus on you know side boob and under boob and. Over boob and any boob that was displayed over the course of of a week. So just all that sort of the general dumbing down that that comes about because of those sorts of outlets. Yeah, that's where that's where my sort of resentment
0: lies. Sorry, I'm getting very earnest now. Look, you and Evan are now fancy free. What's next?
1: Well, I'm about to go on tour um doing a live show. Evan and I are writing material for that. It's called The War on 2023. So we do a it's a, a an annual year in review show that I've been doing for I think about five years now with Charles Firth again, who got me my first break, and James Schleppel is the man behind the shovel, and Gabby Bolt, who's a brilliant, brilliant musical comedian. You know, writes, performs. You know, very, very funny songs. So yeah, so we're about to go on tour with that. And yeah, and truth be told, I'm in sort of pitch mode at the moment about, you know, for, for for other ideas. I would like to try and make things I feel like we've done the two and three minute thing a lot and I've been very grateful to do it for a decade. But yeah, we'd like to would love to actually finally after all these years in terms of having stuck the influence of sitcoms that I mentioned early on. To now have a crack at doing something longer form, you know, like a half-hour scripted comedy. That that would be that would be the dream, I think.
0: Well, Mark, look, I've enjoyed your work for many years now. So I wish you all the best and thank you for being on Four for State.
1: An absolute pleasure, Anthony. Thank you very much, and thank you to anyone who's made it to the end of this interview.
0: And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TruCR and heard across the country on the community radio network. 4 for State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Four For State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about the media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back for more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 and you can also find us on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.